Hi, I'm Stathis, your host. Before we jump in this episode, let me introduce DevRelX. DevRelX is a hub for developer marketing and DevRel professionals. Stay home while DevRelX brings you rich content to boost your DevRel game. Access developer population insights, news, job openings, and more. Discover how to empower developers and grow communities at devrelx.com. Today's episode will start with a quote from our guest. Um, I spend a lot of time with the sales team, helping them understand personas. Actually, that's what I do with marketing as well, helping them understand the persona um, much deeper than saying, this is a developer. And I think that that's part of you know, what Slash Data does with, with the annual report. Hello and welcome to Under the Hood of Developer Marketing, our Slash Data podcast. I'm Stathis Yurgakopoulos, your host. Today, I'm joined by Chris Riley, a very passionate man about technology and DevOps advocate for Splunk. Chris, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Uh, Will you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah. So um, my name is Chris Riley. My role here at Splunk is as a DevOps advocate. I usually introduce myself as a bad coder turned advocate, which I'll elaborate on a little bit later. Um, But I've always been in the field of tech, uh, born and raised in Colorado, did my time in the Silicon Valley and moved back to Colorado. And during that journey, you know, learned a lot about both on the implementation side of technology, but also on go to market with technical audiences. How did you end up in your uh, current role in Splunk? Uh, what was the driving force or uh, if it was a role model that led you to, to where you are today in this whole journey? Yeah. So, you know, I'd say that the advocacy role um, found me. I didn't find it. Prior to being what I prefer now is the term advocate. That's my preferred term over evangelist, which was my previous title. I started my career out as a developer. Um, I moved from Colorado to the Silicon Valley, became a developer. And I learned very quickly that while I had a deep interest in the core technology and software development, I was not great at details. And so application development wasn't really my thing. It wasn't my forte. I was great at prototyping, but trying to build something that was production worthy was very difficult and very frustrating. And I think I got more annoyed with the process than than I got joy out of it. So I also dabbled around that time. Around that time, there was no real sense of advocacy. Um, Guy Kawasaki certainly exists. um, And he had kind of the evangelism advocacy role going on at Apple. But by and large, in industry, advocacy evangelism didn't exist. And for sure, DevRel wasn't kind of an official function. So I dabbled in many things around the go-to-market of going after developers, everything from sales, sales engineering, product management, to product marketing, and ultimately what became very obvious as the developer evangelism um, role became kind of a solidified thing, mostly due to Microsoft, fell into advocacy and evangelism, which is a very interesting role, and and I'll get to expand on it. Um, So I like to say that that really the role found me. What was the driving force behind, you know, fitting into that 
was that I had kind of a good balance of the business side of selling technical software, as well as understanding the practitioner and having passion for the practitioner and the core technologies that, that they used. Um, so that really kind of pulled me into this direction where I wanted to be help vendors position and get technology in front of practitioners in a meaningful way, in a way that they expected and was useful to them. Yeah, that's great. And uh, was there a habit that um, you picked up in your childhood from your early Colorado years that uh, you still carry to your work life today? Yeah, it's kind of, it's a similar response, but uh, there's an interesting twist on this. The first thing is just the obsession with technology. Uh, You know, I've been tech obsessed throughout, I don't know, from the age of nine on up, I couldn't let it go. And I also, more specifically, when I started to get into the career force, was very interested in this idea, um, because I have a computer science degree, of technology actually becoming something that's consumed widely in industry. Um, So kind of an entrepreneurial spirit around that as well. Um, Wanting to sell software, I've had several startups of my own, and I was able to meld those two together. But more specifically, being tech obsessed is, is mandatory. I think it's very difficult to become an advocate coming from being business obsessed to supporting the technology, I think it has to come the other way because you have to have a very clear passion for technology and you need to radiate that through practitioners and it needs to be obvious. The second thing that's really interesting um, and kind of gets to how this role found me versus me finding the role, I'm actually dyslexic and I don't see that as, as a detriment. Um, dyslexia you know, has its challenges, of course, when it comes to consuming written information um, and presenting written information, but it's actually exactly what helped me for this role. And the reason for that is that I have to be able to consume information on various planes and in various ways and synthesize that without having kind of the matter of fact book that I memorize and learn. I have to learn concepts from all the different sorts of sources and put them together. And in my role, advocacy, when I have to clearly speak to practitioners at a technical level and clearly speak to CIOs, CTOs at a business level, and then interact with the company's support team, our, our you know, Splunk support team, marketing team, um, customer success, all at the same time, it's important that I can take one technical concept and communicate it in all those various ways. And that really came from me being dyslexic. Um, so it's kind of a superpower in, in a way. You know, what I would do in the workforce had this advocacy role not been a, a more common thing, it, it might have been different, um, maybe more challenging. But I, I really kind of lucked out that we are in the time um, that we are where you have to engage with practitioners in an extremely meaningful and genuine way. That worked out really well for me. Yeah, and I love how you say it's a superpower and it's definitely encouraging uh, for everyone to hear that um, what appears to be as a challenge in the beginning is actually something that uh, can help you push forward. So that's great to hear. 
You said before that you're a bad coder that turned advocate. Partly, I think you already answered this question, but I still have to ask. Do you think you need to be a developer to be good at uh, developer advocacy or developer relations? I guess it it has to do with, you know, how you define developer, whether that means you're in, in the business of development or you developer, you develop on your own. Yes, I think you you have to be a, I'll call it a practicing dabbling developer. <laughs> um, you have to dabble. You, you have to get involved. This week, I refreshed myself on Node.js and building an API in Node.js. Um, I spent two hours on a, you know, a Lydia or the LinkedIn learning course, went through all the stuff, got a refresher on it. Um, later this week, I plan on doing the same another two hours, just sitting and watching on design patterns, getting a refresher on the most common design patterns. For me in particular, the reason, and, it, and it, when we get to talking about the difference between advocacy and DevRel, DevRel, maybe not so much, but for advocacy, your interest has to be very clear, but you also need to be able to be in a conversation that is technical at that level. I think it matters a lot. Now, being a full-time proficient developer, um, no, not, not necessarily. And your time is not going to permit you to do that. You know, the things that I do, I do a lot of uh, LinkedIn learning videos. I build plugins for my Minecraft server. I know that sounds really nerdy. But I do that. Or um, really cool. You know, I have a 5U rack in my basement that I, I play with stuff. I think you have to have that interest, but you don't have to force yourself to become proficient, which sometimes can be very frustrating because you do have to at some point drop in for the, the real work, which is, you know, engaging with uh, the community. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, this is a question that has come up on, on, I think, every episode of uh, this podcast, and it's, um, there's no right answer there. I, yeah, for developer relations, yeah, the, the majority of people believe that you don't really need to be a developer, but uh, the way you put it for, uh, for advocacy, you definitely need to be technical at, that, at a level that you can be very helpful to those that come to you. Mm-hmm. Yep. So what do you love most about being a developer advocate? <laughs> And this is where the coronavirus is kind of backfiring on me. I love engaging in conversations about real tech adoption. You know, we, we all are inundated with the marketing hype. And the, the marketing stuff is great because it builds awareness. But I really like hearing stories from companies like Delta and USA Today and all these companies who are doing amazing things in terms of their development processes, um, the technologies they're using, and really digging into how they do that and the problems that they solve. And some of that I get to do just internally with Splunk. I engage with our engineering team all the time. And, and I, I want to bring that up a little bit later as well. Um, I go through PI plannings to understand, you know, what we are doing, the challenges we're facing and how we solve them because everybody's facing a challenge. All the high tech vendors are, everybody is, and we're all kind of going through this journey of making sure that we're building better applications for our users and supporting them in a better way. And so that's my favorite part is just having the conversation. 
And if I could do just that, <laughs> then I would travel around and have a conversation. Unfortunately, travel is, is becoming limited day by day. Just today, um, we were told that we're, we should not be in our offices anymore. But you know that once that picks up again, that's really where I get my energy is, is having those conversations. So it's uh, mostly events that drive you. Yeah, I yeah. understand. It's a, events it's a bummer, and, but Yeah, and events and not just like sitting, actually not sitting through the sessions necessarily. It's, it's, it, it sounds crazy. I actually really love booth duty. Most people shy away from booth duty. But the reason I love booth duty is when there's kind of a lull at the booth, you have conversations with people that are very kind of real and get in the weeds. And having those kind of ad hoc conversations with practitioners are, are just the best thing. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, you know, although booth duty or, uh, you know, even booths at events are uh, what most people tend to avoid, the people, yeah. in fact, that are there only have the best to say about it and now wouldn't right. change it for anything. So yeah. I guess you're one of them. Yeah, that's right. And um, what has been your uh, biggest challenge? as an advocate throughout the career my career of advocacy and i should rewind a little bit uh, prior to splunk my last role was kind of an industry advocate at large i uh, worked for a company called fixate but fixate sells marketing services to tech vendors and my job was to manage the community Um, at Fixate, but also make sure I understand what happens in market and bring that back to the community to help influence tech um, content creation. So that was kind of a broad advocacy role. Prior to that, I was at the title was evangelist, um, but it's same role for a cloud startup in the Silicon Valley. And I had in all my four roles prior to that were all essentially in advocacy. And I saw an evolution of the role. And going back to the early days, those who were on the early adoption, I'll say, of evangelism and advocacy understood the overall benefit of the role. What they struggled to do was tie it to the business. And so throughout my career of advocacy, I've been spending a lot of time in getting better and better at understanding how advocacy directly relates to the business side of things and where the role should fit within the organization. And that has always been a challenge. So, um, you know, going back to the advocacy in the cloud startup, defining my KPIs, OKR, OKRs, MBOs, whatever you want to call them, the objectives that you are measured by was probably one of the most challenging things. And then quantifying those the insights that you deliver internally because you have to understand also you know externally you're engaging with the community internally you're making sure that your organization understands the persona and the community in depth to kind of help drive product decisions help drive sales decisions how you sell to them help drive marketing how you create content for them And putting a wrapper around that that's very clear for the organization is difficult. Uh, and for some, for some organizations who haven't adequately prepared for this, it can spell doom for the advocate if they don't figure that out in advance. And I've seen that happen 
quite a bit, man, maybe more times than not, unfortunately. So I think it's more of an internal communication has been the problem. Um, externally, biggest challenge, you know, um, getting speaker recs <laughs> approved, I guess. Uh, you know, just getting out there, you, you, it's kind of a chicken or egg problem to be a great advocate. You already have to kind of have a name, but that shouldn't prevent somebody from becoming an advocate. That's not really fair. So you kind of, you have to get that critical mass and momentum behind you to fit into the role and that takes time. So that, that was an early challenge for me that I, a hurdle that I've kind of overcome. Yeah, and I think um, what is key to note here is, as you said, you're, you're in the middle. You're between the, the business and the community, and uh, right. it, your role is to serve both, which is right. it's a challenge by design. Uh, yep. So what makes a good developer advocate? What are some skills or things that people in this role do that make them good at it? Yeah. So I guess I'll break it down into two categories, um, one more conceptual and the other more, more strategic. So I'll start with conceptual because it's actually the easiest. You have to be genuine. When push comes to shove, you have to be genuine. People, people can read you. It's obvious when, when you're, you're speaking about something that you yourself don't believe in, you can't do that, um, especially for advocacy. And, and again, I'm speaking specifically about advocacy and evangelism. The other thing is you have to love your product. You can't blog and you can't talk about a technology space or, or a technology space where your company sells a product to address without actually loving the product itself. That, that is just mandatory and it becomes so obvious when it's not true. Um, it's not fair to yourself. And it's not fair to the company and it's not fair to the practitioners if you're just not totally into the product um, and understand the value it provides. So those, those are the conceptual things. And both of these are glaringly obvious when you engage with somebody. And, and again, it comes to that, you know, when somebody comes up and talks to you, they know you work for a vendor. They understand you get a paycheck from a vendor. But when they have a conversation with you, if they're really going to open up and talk to you about their use cases, their scenarios, things they struggle with, areas where they want input, then they have to see you as a genuine techie, which means you have to be a genuine techie. So that's the first one. Um, tactically, um, you know, externally out in the field, you need to feel comfortable speaking. And I, I'd say my first advice to anybody who's speaking is to be comfortable. You know, my style is that I can't rehearse. If I rehearse, I actually make it worse for myself when I get on stage. So I have to know what I'm going to talk about um, from a conceptual framework, but not the words I'm going to say. And actually, that, that's a dyslexia thing. But you have to be comfortable being on stage because the best talks come from people who are comfortable and are comfortable in their own skin when they're up there talking versus fully, fully scripted. Obviously, you have to be able to um, blog, right? You know, blogging is a big part of my job. You may wonder, how does that work with somebody who's dyslexic? Works very well, because I usually don't reread any of my blog posts. I can crank out blog posts all day long, but I never have to kind of reread them. I have amazing um, editorial people who 
are are patient enough and experienced enough to make the words I put on paper sound really good. So, but you have to you have to be able to to produce content that is meaningful to the personas and and that requires some focus and some good kind of management skills, especially when you're on the hook to produce, I don't know, uh, 12 blog posts a month, for example, um, which is, you know, around where I'm at lately. Sometimes it's even more. Um, you need to be able to write. You need to feel comfortable writing. Most techies have imposter syndrome, and that can inhibit their ability to speak and write. Uh, so that's just kind of something that, that you have to get over that hurdle. So that's externally. Those are two very tactical things. Internally, you have to be able to know how to engage with your peers and you have to do it. So I think a lot of advocates will focus 100% on the external and not the internal. And the reason the internal is so important is your mind share and what you can bring product teams, um, marketing teams, and sales teams is tremendous. Um, I spend a lot of time with the sales team helping them understand personas. Actually, that's what I do with marketing as well, helping them understand the persona um, much deeper than saying, this is a developer. And I think that that's part of you know, what Slash Data does with, with the annual report. Um, so you have to be able to communicate with them to educate them, but also make it very clear what the value you provide to the organization and make sure you're continuing to provide the value. It's always a push and pull. Like sometimes you get pulled more into the external stuff. Sometimes you get pulled heavily internal. And I think it kind of depends on the seasonality of your organization because every organization has seasonality and you have to adapt to that. But unfortunately, part of this can be politics. I mean, you can call it whatever you want, but you're, you, you're, you are engaging with internal teams. You are understanding their struggles as well and problems they're going to solve. You have to be good at saying no. I have seen a lot of times people start as advocates and eventually become sales engineers just because they're so good at communicating about technology that they end up being brought into every sales call. I, I will join sales calls, but there's a criteria, both in terms of dollar amount and, and, or, or some sort of criteria about the opportunity before I'm brought in. So it does require a lot of discipline there, but a willingness to engage with your peers as much or almost as much as you engage with the market. I kept nodding as you were talking. Uh, totally agree with everything. There's obviously you're also so experienced. So you know how, how these things are. And I also think you're explaining very well, especially for someone who's new to that. Uh, so they'll be very thankful. What I see that it's key from what you said is how you said that you need to be passionate about the technology you are uh, representing, I think. And uh, well, this, I guess, is a challenge on its own because if you find uh, the role that fits you and you're passionate about the technology, I think that, uh, as you said, it blogging about it, writing about it, or speaking about it in conferences should come very easy. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's much more natural that way. Yeah. One question I had is, because you said that evangelism has developed into advocates and then uh, developer relations, DevRel came up later. How are developer advocates and developer relations different? Yeah. So um, 
I'll, I'll preface this with I, I have a very strong opinion on this topic, which, which the strong opinion is they are, in, in my mind, two completely separate roles. They work very well together. They, they have similar objectives, um, but they are two completely separate roles. And the reason I, I think that is I'll start with advocates. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rewind a little bit. Well, back to the challenge. Um, when I was part of this journey of kind of clearly defining how an advocate evangelism impacts the business, there was a time where I would, my role didn't change. I was a tech advocate. But at one time, I reported to marketing. One point time, I reported to support. At one time, I reported to engineering and product. And of all of those incidents, I'd say that the time that was the most genuine was when I was part of engineering and product. But ideally, if you're a large enough organization, advocacy should be its own department. It really should, with ties into all of those organizations. When I was a part of marketing, which is more of a DevRel role, the problem was my key metric was impressions on the blog. And that was it. And so it kind of created this undue motive not to focus on engagement with the market. When I was a part of sales, I became a sales engineer. That's ultimately what ended up happening. You're an advocate, but it gradually kind of just worked its way into sales engineering. So that's when it became very clear to me that developer advocacy really is its own thing. And the reason I like advocate over evangelism is I think it, it represents more what we're doing with the community. We're not trying to convince them of something. We are becoming their peers and communicating. Now, DevRel is truly more of a marketing function. Some organizations don't even, may need advocacy, but not DevRel and vice versa. Now, DevRel, for any company who has an API, if you have an API, you should have DevRel. And it should probably be tied into marketing, and it should have similar marketing components, but be very heavily slanted to the developer persona. Because developers buy, the developer journey is completely different than the consumer journey. And not only that, when developers hate something, they really hate something. When they love something, they really love it. And so those two extremes mean that your go-to-market approach needs to be um, tailored. So the way I see it is the advocate is even, even above the funnel. Um, it's either at the very top of the funnel um, or above the marketing funnel to down into the weeds at the very bottom of the funnel. And then DevRel is at the top of the funnel all the way through until the bottom of the funnel. That full, full entire flow with good digital marketing habits. Now what DevRel has to understand that traditional digital marketing doesn't is how that technical persona buys. And this is where things like the the slash data annual developer report matters a lot because in DevRel, you have to prioritize things like documentation. Documentation is extremely important. You have to prioritize blog posts, not only blog posts written by you because blog posts written by you immediately come with a baggage related to, you know, you work for the vendor, but also blog posts from practitioners outside the organization. 
And that's exactly what I did in my previous role. You have to understand that the developer portal needs to get answers in the hands of the techie from a technical perspective as quickly as possible. So that's where documentation, tutorials, technical blog posts, the blog posts may not be directly about your product. It may be tangential to your product. And so you have to map that journey all the way through. Both roles need to have empathy for developers, uh, understanding the roles, understanding how they buy, understanding you know, their, their work lives. But the advocate is more, it's, it's more loosely defined than, than DevRel. And, you know, some of the tactical things on DevRel I already saw, said were um, documentation, tutorials, making sure that people can get to a trial as quickly as possible. Because we know that in the developer motion, that a developer will have vetted you and pretty much kind of made up their mind about you even before they talk to you. And one of the metrics that I established previously uh, around this is called share of conversation. And what you're trying to do is make sure that you don't hit an objection even before your sales team has a chance to talk to them. And there's a lot of specifics on how to do that. You really have to look at the data <laughs> and you may need to partner with an external resource to help you do that, like my previous company was. But you, you, your job in DevRel is to execute those components. And maybe you don't need to be as technical, but one thing I, I plead to all DevRel people is that sit with your engineering team at least once a month so that when you hear the terms, you, you, they don't just bounce off you. And also so that you understand what they're going through. Because vendors have this, this anchor bias where they believe that when a developer starts working with their tool, that's all that they're doing. No, they're working with your tool and 15 other tools, and they're trying to firefight um, release functionality and so forth. And so kind of getting that perspective is good for anybody who's going after a developer to have. And I, if it were up to me, it would be mandatory for DevRel people to sit with their engineering team uh, at least once a month. Yeah, totally true. And this, in fact, has come up quite a lot when we say that in DevRel, you don't really need to be a developer yourself, but uh, you need to be technical and you need to be able to understand, well, what we're talking about, uh, honestly. With yeah, and otherwise uh, you need to know where to get help. Um, yeah, exactly. Plus empathy, I think uh, there is not one episode in this podcast that empathy has not come up. Uh, you need <laughs> to be able, yeah, you need to be able to understand uh, the problems and getting your shoes in order to be able to help them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we all know that developers can be curmudgeon and and you know, speak their mind and either they say too little or they say too much. Um, and I, I tend, I, I'm, I fall exactly in that same category. These are all been complaints about my own uh, communication, but they, they also, they do buy on emotion. They do. They don't want to be the last to know about something. They want to be able to share with their peers something cool that they figured out. They love doing that. And that is the role that is the job of an organization is to empower them to do that without being overt 
um, salesy and marketing and that, that you can only understand that with empathy. And it, it is a, it is a nuance. I, I love the nuance. I think it's, it's fun. Um, some people it's very frustrating that it's not cut and dry, but I, I really like that about the role. Yeah. And don't forget that uh, developers are allergic to marketing talk and sales talk. Yeah. I want to note something here because, um, you've talked a lot about personas. I don't know if everyone is aware of it. Uh, I just want to say that uh, a couple of weeks back, we did a webinar on um, developer psychographics and personas, which is exactly what you said before. You don't just see a developer. You try to understand who that person is, what are their preferences, what they do. The video is available on, on YouTube. Uh, for the webinar, it's uh, it's open to everyone who who won't refer, it. and uh, I will add the link to the description of the episode. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, um, things like uh, what I'm dealing with right now, carpal tunnel. <laughs> you, you have to know everything about their lives and their their struggles, and yeah, that podcast is great. Thank you for that. And uh, you've come a long way in the tech roles and uh, you have accumulated all this experience and now you're in the point to, to talk and educate people about that. What we know is that there's no formal form of education for um, developer roles. What newcomers in the field should look into to learn more about developer marketing, developer relations or advocacy? Yeah. Yeah, there is no school of DevRel and advocacy, unfortunately. I, I mean, actually, your podcast is as, as close as it gets in and some of the data coming out from slash data and elsewhere is very useful. Yeah, that's um, what we, we try to do our best with it. And uh, yeah. you know, we wrote the book, we have the podcast, you know, we're, we're trying to help people know how to do this best. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, just like developers get information, I think peers matter a lot. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to focus on two things in terms of education. Number one is just an open call. So if, if any anybody you know listening to the podcast wants to know more um i'm always learning because i'm living this role um most recently at splunk i had the opportunity to be in an organization where the advocacy function is a separate function it's the first time and wow it's amazing how powerful that is for the organization and externally in the market so open call um I'm learning, you're learning, but if you, if you have any questions and want to know more specifics about, you know, the journey that I've gone through, happy to talk to anybody um, on LinkedIn, um, Twitter, whatever about that. The second thing I would say is that the market, it has been around for long enough that the market has shown us high performers and low performers in advocacy. The high performers are obvious. I'm not going to list the companies here because I don't think that that's necessarily appropriate. Obviously, I think that the model that we use within Splunk is, is the best model, but you know, that's a bias. There's other companies out there that very clearly have, have killed both the, just done it very well, both advocacy and DevRel. And actually, when I think about it, I, I can't say one that has done both at the same time as a slam dunk, but I can point to several organizations who have either killed it in DevRel or killed it in advocacy. And looking at those organizations and how they structure their programs is critical. I had the fortunate ability in my previous role to see both the good and the bad on a broad scale on various types of businesses. And there are some very clear patterns on those who do it well 
versus those who don't. The other thing is similar in advocacy, um, you, it's pretty, you should be able to find the high performing advocates out there in your space. Now, unfortunately, kind of the markets are segmented fairly dramatically, and especially as more and more companies have APIs who are not tech companies necessarily or do not sell directly to developers, but they need the API to enable developers, it may be hard to find an advocate who's already in that space. But engaging with them in understanding how they do what they do is, is extremely extremely useful. I would say that those two kind of paths where you look at the high performers and the low performers, that's important, and find out what the high performers are doing to, to nail it, and there's clear patterns there. What the low performers are doing to, to struggle, there's clear patterns there. They, they fall around how they measure the role. They measure it incorrectly. They're focused on the wrong things. They treat DevRel as a full-on marketing activity versus, you know, kind of a hybrid activity. Looking at those and then finding people like myself who have been doing it for a while, because that's how I learned in when I was an advocate in the SharePoint space. I know, I know. I used to be a SharePoint developer and then became a Microsoft MVP and advocate. I, I followed the practice of the top advocate in the space at the time. That's how I learned everything. And so, and then, so finding those advocate peers and DevRel peers are very important. Okay, so in lack of formal education, as we said, it, it's uh, the best way to learn is learn from the best and see, see what they've done right and then try to see what others have done wrong. And yeah, yeah, and the wrong matters a lot unfortunately like a lot of times it, it, in the software world i i when i talk to practitioners i'm like tell me what's not working don't tell me what's working tell me what's not working and what you're doing like what are the challenges you're still facing because it's that's tremendously helpful when i communicate with our engineering team um and product same thing in this case companies are not going to admit their faults in devrel and advocacy a lot of times they're running these programs and they don't even realize themselves where they fit in the spectrum of success or failure for those types of programs. So it takes a very discerning eye. Um, I can't be candid about those companies here um, in this forum, but I would be happy to elaborate for anybody who's interested. But if you do enough research, you can find them and it becomes pretty obvious. And it's worth any company who's just considering advocacy it's worth and almost a mandate, I think, to do, this, to do this research and understand because you're not doing justice to yourself or the roles if you bring DevRel and or advocacy into the organization without clearly understanding how it impacts the business. I, I've seen, I can count 20 or 30 people who I thought were tremendous advocates um, in particular, who went into organizations who had never had advocacy before, and it didn't work out within six to eight months. And I've seen probably three or four times same thing happen, where organizations spun up a dev DevRel campaign activity, but didn't spend the time to understand really what that meant, and it failed. So it's important to invest time in that effort. I really like how you say, you know, this 
let's say, pro projects that didn't really work out because this is what we had in mind when we uh, set up to, to publish the book we have and also for our um, future developer summit speakers when we asked everyone to not only share success stories but only share stories where they failed because it's, yeah. you know, in success stories, you know, everything goes well and you say, okay, that's great. But the real value for someone on things to really avoid to, be, to produce a better result is on the failed stories. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, because only then can you kind of work together. Uh, you know, my mo my, everybody's dealing with some sort of challenge and solutions to the challenges that I have almost all the time come from activities completely unrelated to what I'm specifically working on. But it, it only comes when I, you know, fully kind of figure out what the challenges are and then allow, you know, um, feedback uh, and input and collaboration to, to kind of figure out the opportunities to solve them. And usually opportunities I'd never thought about. Sometimes I'll be dealing with, um, you know, very business related problems. And as part of a standard practice of mine to engage with engineering teams, I'll tell them what my challenge is. And I'd be damned if I haven't come up with solutions just by engaging with them because they have a totally different perspective on how to solve problems and, it, and it's very useful. So you, you got to dig into the, the challenges um, and, and communicate those um, for sure. Well, uh, Chris, it's been great having you. I think we could uh, talk for hours and hours because yeah, I, know, <laughs> I know you have a lot of things to say and um, I'm sure people will uh, have come with more questions that might be directed your way. So where yeah, can I they know. reach you on... Uh, you said LinkedIn, um, Twitter. Can you share your uh, handles? Yeah. So um, on, I don't know the full URL on LinkedIn, um, but you know, just no, search your, for your Chris name, Riley. Yeah. yeah. Um, on on Twitter, it's hoarding info. Um, I have my own podcast, Developers Eating the World, and yeah, I I'd, I'd love to engage with people who are trying to solve this problem. You know, I, I really like to share what I know and, and I like to learn from others what they know as well. I, I do have a Slack channel local in Colorado kind of around this topic, um, but that's very local. So if you're in Colorado, please ask to be invited to that um, where we continue that conversation here locally. And yeah, that's the best way. Well, that's great. Uh, thank you for sharing all this knowledge with us, Chris. Thank you. It was great yeah, having thank you. you. And I, I hope the, the guests get something out of it. And I hope if, if you're building a DevRel program, you know, share this podcast with all of your peers in the entire um, marketing department, in the entire you know, sales department, um, not just this episode, but all of the episodes, <laughs> because that's how you're going to get a critical mass uh, around building a program and that's how you're going to get the buy-in to do it correct thank you for that really important to hear it from you and uh, for our listeners thank you for tuning in to under the hood of developer marketing our podcast devoted to developer marketing and relations if you want to listen to other episodes you can subscribe at developermarketingpodcast.com or follow us on twitter at slash data hq for regular updates thank you very much chris yeah thank you Thank you.